This is a Federal News Network podcast. Pretty much taken for granted, federal employees' unions have been around for more than a century. The National Federation of Federal Employees dates to the World War I era. The next big push came from President John F. Kennedy, whose Executive Order 10988 launched the modern era of federal unions. What is their proper role today, and do they help or hinder what Kennedy called the effective conduct of public business? Ron, good to have you on. Glad to be here. And you were in the intelligence community and also in the civilian side of government as a human capital officer, chief human capital officer, and have just thought about this quite a bit in your career. Tell us what your experience was, first of all, in dealing with unions in those times. Well, uh, I'll confess to being a uh, longtime management representative. My very first federal job, I was chief spokesman for a collective bargaining agreement uh, covering about 17,000 government civilians. Uh, I was on the management side, and I'll confess to having negotiated some of the largest collective bargaining agreements in government, including the master labor agreement with the uh, National Treasury Employees Union. So I've had a long experience as a management representative going head to head with unions. And let me just say that I personally believe that the tension in going head to head with unions is very healthy, at least within certain guardrails. I've always felt that there are two points of view. It's not exclusively management. It's not exclusively union. And trying to work out our differences at the bargaining table or through consultation and collaboration has always been, uh, I think, useful to me from an agency standpoint. You want to hear from employees. You want to uh, try to take their point of view in a, into account. It can't all be um, a, you know, a management uh, perspective. So I think the tension has been healthy, and I've seen that tension play out in some of the biggest bargaining tables um, ever. And did you get the sense that the desires and aims of the unions were aligned with those of the employees themselves? Because, again, large numbers of employees in not so much manufacturing settings or factory-type settings, but mostly white-collar settings. Well, that's always been the, the big question. Of course, in the federal government, unions can't have a union shop. They can't mandate membership. Uh, Dues and membership are all voluntary. So one of the questions that everyone has, especially on the management side, does the union really reflect the rank and file workforce at large? We know they reflect dues paying members, but they are elected as exclusive representatives for the entire workforce, for the entire bargaining unit. And so um, we always had to gauge whether the demands they were making on us represented the demands of the workforce at large. And I have to confess that in some cases we were never sure. I will tell you that when uh, I negotiated the master labor agreement with the National Treasury Employees Union, we always felt that NTEU spoke for the rank and file workforce, despite the number that may actually pay dues. When we were standing up the Department of Homeland Security, or trying to establish the parameters for the national security personnel system. In the latter case, we were actually dealing with 70 unions trying to work through that. I think we had less confidence that those 70 unions spoke for the almost 800,000 civilians in DOD. But it is one of the questions that has to be taken into account as you explore the, the, uh, the value of unions in government. And you mentioned the tension between management and the union representatives in the time of negotiating master agreements. And uh, you said that was a healthy thing. Explore that a little bit more with us. Well, let's take an individual case as an example, trying to uh, fire somebody for poor performance. 
of course, there's a management point of view. Here's your performance agreement, your performance standards. Mr. or Ms. Employee, you're not living up to them, and uh, we want to uh, remove you from the workplace. Well, there is an alternative point of view, and I think it's healthy to hear that alternative point of view. It could be bad management. It could be poor working conditions. It could be ambiguous personnel policies or performance standards that are at the root of that poor performance. And at the end of the day, every employee is valuable. So it's healthy to have those contrasting points of view in an individual case. And again, when you um, elevate that and talk about this uh, at the collective bargaining level, it is also healthy to have that counterpoint at that level. It's not all management. It's not all labor. It's trying to find the balance between the two. Uh, you know, I can think of innumerable examples from individual cases to matters of agency-wide policy or even government-wide policy when you look at the Labor Management Partnership Council, where having that point of view is healthy up to a point. Again, it's not healthy if it, be, if it ends up stifling or impeding agency operations. Uh, I'm a management guy, so the mission is most important to me. And if collective bargaining gets in the way of that mission, then I'm going to push back. But uh, at the same time, it's healthy to have that employee um, uh, viewpoint when considering the mission. Let me give you a quick example. I, I sure. apologize for running on, but in standing up the Department of Homeland Security, uh, in the very, very early days, we wrestled with the union uh, unions. There were uh, four of them that had national uh, recognition. We wrestled with the unions over who would meet suspicious ships or planes at the border. You know, you got a ship coming in, the cargo is suspicious, it's coming from a place that you don't trust, mm -hmm. who's going to meet? And the unions would always take the view, well, if it's, you know, in the middle of the night, graveyard shift, uh, let it be the most junior employees, the most senior employees should have their choice of shifts. Well, that may be true in a general sense, but when you're meeting a suspicious ship at the border, San Diego, Seattle, Miami, wherever, you want your most experienced people meeting that ship. And if it's at two in the morning, so be it. You want your most experienced people. I have to, uh, have to tell you, when we confronted rank and file members with that point of view, they said, yes, you want us at the border. We're the ones that can detect, uh, you know, that, that are going to be most suspicious, have the most experience, are most likely to detect somebody trying to get around the, you know, the protections at the border. So, so again, having that point of view is healthy. And in some cases, again, unions will adopt that management point of view when it comes to, uh, to the mission. We're speaking with South Florida University Professor Ron Sanders, former federal chief human capital officer. And that kind of answers my next question is you regularly hear the union officials, and I believe them, that say that they too have the delivery of services to the public or the mission at the top of their minds when negotiating with agencies. And you got the sense then in general that that was true of them. And I think in general that is true from my management uh, perspective, that at the end of the day, and I, I, I think this is unique. Well, I, I'm not going to use the word unique, but I think it is characteristic of most federal labor representatives. They come from the mission and they are uh, loyal to that mission. And while they may say, here's an employee perspective, at the end of the day, if you can demonstrate to them that what they want to do would actually impede the mission, then I think for the most part, they're going to say, okay, mission first. 
not always. Again, there's there's that healthy tension. But for the most part, I think because for, particularly for those that have grown up on the front lines and then later taken on uh, union positions, they are the ones that are most likely to remain loyal and with some allegiance to that mission. Sure. And the example you used of who should meet these suspicious ships showed that they could be flexible on strict seniority types of questions when the mission demanded something other than what strict seniority and assignments of shifts and jobs and so forth would ordinarily demand. And I have to tell you a little bit of anecdotal dirty laundry here. The union officials we were dealing with had no experience in homeland security, border security, national security. They came from a different agency. And honestly, they had less concern about that mission and more concern about seniority should rule, junior employees do the graveyard shift. When we actually got to rank and file union members and union officials who came from that rank and file, they had a different point of view and they said mission first and we'll figure out how to accommodate uh, employees, junior and senior. So again, I think a lot of it comes down to um, who you're dealing with, and it, it will vary. But even then, the, as I said, the tension is uh, is healthy. Sure. Was there ever an occasion when negotiating a deal with one of the unions that you just wanted to pick up an ashtray and throw it at them, if they had ashtrays yes. <laughs> still in those days? Uh, more than more than once. And, and again, I'll, I'll give you an example, and it'd be interesting to hear some of my union uh, colleagues uh, respond to this. But when uh, again, I'll harken back to when we were standing up the Department of Homeland Security, and we wanted to have a wanted to create a series of what are called zero tolerance offenses. I had them in the IRS. If a, if an IRS employee browsed a taxpayer's tax records, like Tom Cruise's, yep. they were out the door. Sure, no mitigation, no nothing. They were out the door, and we wanted to take a similar approach with Homeland Security security breach out the door. You know, I, I won't bore you with all of the examples, but there were they were mission-driven examples. And of course, uh, the union point of view was always due process, notice, no zero tolerance. You should have progressive discipline. A, a third party should be able to mitigate that discipline. And uh, I will tell you that the folks on the management side of that debate did feel like throwing something at our union colleagues. But again, I don't think they took that position in bad faith. I think it was a position born out of employee concerns that if we let management do this, zero tolerance, they're going to abuse it and you know use it to get rid of employees that just happen to disagree with them. And, and so I think at the end of the day, when you build that trust and you can, uh, you can take it for granted that both sides are approaching a problem in good faith, then you're going to be able to work things out. Yeah, that's really the secret sauce here, isn't it? I think in the last administration, we saw a breakdown of faith in the other side's trustworthiness going in two directions, and that led to some really tough human capital and tough human relations, basic human relations issues, which can get in the way of good negotiations. It can, and and, uh, I'll share another sort of dirty little secret with you. You know, the way the pendulum always seemed to swing from left to right to left to right, as opposed to settling in the center. Take the Labor Management Partnership Council. Right. Every Republican administration, including ones that I have served, took it upon themselves to eliminate that Partnership Council. I will tell you that line human capital officials, including management officials like myself, always sort of wrinkled our nose at that because we knew you had to build a trusting relationship with your union 
no matter what the presidential administration was, because you had to live with them on a day-to-day -day basis uh, and you, you had to work with them to accomplish the mission. So we always used to say behind closed doors, the Partnership Council is about as a benign a forum as you can have. It's a place for unions to share their point of view. It's not binding. Keep it in place because I will tell you, every human capital officer and labor relations specialist on the management side worth her or his salt is maintaining a productive relationship with the union, despite what the you know Washington politics or politicians may be saying. You just have to do that in order to survive. And what's your feeling about the issues that have been hot buttons for a couple of years now? Now they seem to be mostly over, and that is official time. That is federal employees doing union business on federal clock time, I guess you could say. And also the concomitant issue of whether the union should have well-equipped free space within federal agencies. That was taken away those things under, mostly under the Trump administration. Now they're back under the Biden administration. Should we be arguing about that particular detail? Certainly not arguing about that in cases of legitimate good faith representation of workforce interests. Official time spent doing that is official time well spent. I always appreciated having a union counterpart, full-time union employee who uh, I could bring in and shut the door and we could have an honest good faith conversation about whether this employee or, or this workplace should change or be fired or whatever the case may be. So official time spent in good faith solving workplace problems, we shouldn't be arguing about that. Same thing with union space, uh, especially if that union space allowed me to have access to union officials without having to travel across town. If I could just walk down the hall, shut the door and have those honest conversations. Have there been cases of abuse? Yes. There should be a way to police those abuses. And I will tell you, I, I found cases where management officials had let union officials get away with murder. And to me, the fault was on both sides of that equation. If the management official was letting a union official use official time for other than official union business representing the worker, then it's just as much that manager's fault as it is the union official's fault, both of them should be fired. But within, you know, within those guardrails, good faith conversations on official time in union spaces furnished by the government, that's okay by me. I found them to be far more useful than abusive. And my final question concerns management, because I guess in an ideal world where every federal line manager and their tens, hundreds of thousands of them was equally talented in dealing with the rank and file workforce, a lot of these questions would never come up. But in many ways, we have that job yet continuing. It's a never-ending job to make sure that those line managers, and in some cases, the upper managers as well, are versed in what their responsibilities are and in the right way to operate an agency and treat their workforce. I agree with that, absolutely. Uh, don't get me started. Uh, I do think that... I think I just one did. Of the, <laughs> one of the things that agencies have to do is uh, train their managers in how to manage people too many times, and, and there's, there's good reason for this, but too many times your best technicians find themselves into first and second line management position. And they know the program, they know the rules, they know the regulations, they don't necessarily know how to lead people. Not their fault. I think that's a uh, responsibility that agencies need to have. And part of that responsibility is to teach them how to deal with their employees and their employees union representatives. It is not all adversarial. 
It should be about solving workplace problems. But that takes training. It takes teaching. I always thought of that as an agency responsibility and took it seriously. Unfortunately, I think as a general matter, the federal government underinvests in its supervisors and managers, and they are less effective as a result. People don't do this. Some people do this naturally, but most do not. They have to be taught. So I think that's an agency responsibility. And when you do, it can work very well. I think that relationship between a first or second line manager and her or his union steward or union vice president or union fill in the blank can solve a lot of workplace problems. It can also ensure that that management official doesn't stand for any abuse. And I think that's where you begin to strike the right balance. Ron Sanders is a professor at South Florida University and former federal chief human capital officer. Thanks so much for joining me. Happy to do it. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until 
middle school being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give 
to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.